Hi, this is Phil Morehart, Senior Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and this is the Dewey Decibel Podcast. When a president leaves office, what happens to the mass amounts of papers, records, photos, video footage, correspondence, mail, emails, and everything else that accumulates during his term in office? Well, it all goes to the presidential library, of course. But that wasn't always the case. The presidential library system, which is administered by the National Archives and Records Administration, a federal agency, is relatively new. The brainchild of President Franklin Roosevelt in the 1940s, the Presidential Library was born to preserve evidence of the presidency for study and appreciation by future generations. And those libraries, 14 of them now total, have changed much in the almost 80 years since Roosevelt's library opened. Today, on the Dewey Decimal Podcast, in celebration of President's Day, we look at presidential libraries then and now. First, I speak with Paul Sparrow. He's the director of the Franklin D. Roosevelt Presidential Library and Museum, the first presidential library. Then I talk with Brooke Clement, deputy director of the Barack Obama Presidential Library, the first online-only presidential library. But first, a word from a sponsor. Does your library have books? What about patrons? If so, why don't you give Shelf Care a listen? That's right. Shelf Care, the podcast, is where we talk all things reader's advisory, collection development, and other library-related bookish stuff from your pals at Booklist. Past episodes have covered horror, and cookbooks, and graphic novels, and beach reads, and that's just the beginning. Subscribe to Shelf Care, the podcast, on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or from whence you are currently listening to our Dewey Decibel friends. That's Booklist Shelf Care, the podcast. Happy reading! The Franklin D. Roosevelt Presidential Library and Museum in Hyde Park, New York, the first presidential library that opened in 1941, was a true labor of love for Roosevelt. Not only did he conceive of the library and the whole presidential library system, he was also intimately involved in the library's design and more. Paul Sparrow, the Library and Museum's director, is a wealth of knowledge about the library and its place in Roosevelt's life and legacy. I spoke with him about the library, its holdings, and how it's changed since first opening. Now, the FDR Presidential Library Museum, it's the, the first presidential library. Um, it was really FDR's brainchild. Uh, can, we, can you give us a bit of uh, background, history on the library itself and the museum? How did it come into being? Well, FDR was a collector from the time he was a little kid. Uh, he collected stamps. He collected ship models. He collected naval prints. He collected books, collected birds. So um, he was a collector his whole life and was very interested in the National Archives, the National Archives building in Washington, D.C., opened during his administration. Um, and he had a, a study commission where he looked at what had happened to the presidential papers of his predecessors, and he realized that there was no coherent uh, collecting program. Some went to universities, some were sold, some were deliberately destroyed by presidents. So he really wanted to create a home 
for his personal collections as well as the official papers of his administration. Um, and he wanted it done here in Hyde Park because he felt very strongly that for anyone in the future coming to study his leadership and his administration, they needed to come to the Hudson Valley. They needed to see where he grew up to understand who he was, to understand what motivated his decisions. So in 1937, he first started kicking this idea around. Uh, 1938, he actually formally started it with raising money and all the things that were needed to be done, assuming that he would be leaving office in January of 1941. Um, the building actually opened in June, uh, June 30th, 1941. But, of course, he had run for an unprecedented third term, so he was still president. Um, and so he actually used the library uh, during the last four years of his presidency. And one thing um, I really found fascinating was how hands-on Roosevelt was with the um the library process. I mean, he, even, from what I understand, he uh, sketched out some of the initial plans, architectural plans for the library. Um, can you talk about a bit about that, like his direct involvement? Because um, it, it is that unique to his library compared with other presidential libraries. Well, FDR was very hands-on in everything, uh, and yeah. yes, he, he did the original drawings of the building. Uh, after the building opened, he actually did a modified set of drawings of what, what he thought uh, two additional wings should be put on to house Eleanor Roosevelt's papers later on in the future. Um, but we have correspondence between him and the architects, which shows just how extraordinarily involved he was. So, for example, if you visit the library today and go and see his study, which is almost exactly as it was uh, in April 1945 when he died, um, you'll see that uh, around the fireplace there was a series of hand-painted uh, tiles. He actually had the architect bring the tiles to the White House and lay them out on the floor so he could make sure they were in the exact order he wanted them around the fireplace. That's the level of detail he was involved in. What exactly is in the library's collection? We have about 17 million pages of uh, documents and records from the uh, Roosevelt administration, and they're not just the presidential papers. He encouraged other members of his administration to donate their papers as well. So we have about 400 different collections from various people who served with him or who were family members. We have uh, about 60,000 books. 22,000 of them were his personal books, in other words, books that he had personally collected during his lifetime that has his signature in it or that um, – that were directly connected to him. We have about 130,000 photographs, probably about 40,000 artifacts uh, that are from the museum. Um, the exact number I don't have off the top of my head, but uh, you know millions, and it's about three million of those documents are records associated with Eleanor Roosevelt and and her life's work. Uh, so it covers a fairly broad spectrum. He also collected uh, naval manuscripts, for example. So there are 70,000 pages of naval manuscripts having to do with the origins of the U.S. Navy with documents signed by John Adams and John Paul Jones and, you know, many of the great naval uh, commanders during the age of fighting sail. Uh, and they sort of go with his ship models and all the paintings and uh, naval prints that he has. So it's a it's a very eclectic collection. None of the other presidential libraries have anything close to the kind of personal collection that he gave to the American public. Um, is there anything in particular that stands out for you? What's what's your personal favorite item in the collection? Well, uh, I love his book collection because it reflects uh, both his wide range of curiosities and interests and uh, the attention he paid to, to collecting rare and unusual objects. Uh, one of my favorite books is a 
book that was given to him by Winston Churchill. Uh, in 1943, they published uh, Winston Churchill's war speeches. You know, they never have so many, oh, so much to so few of those speeches. And he had, Churchill had given FDR a number of his uh, books over the years as they'd known each other. And in the front piece of this book is inscribed, uh, A Fresh Egg from a Faithful Hen, Your Friend, Winston. Uh, and it, it sort of goes to the very close relationship uh, that they had. There are also objects in the collection that are uh, reflective of the um, amazing uh, relationships he had with world leaders, uh, with Stalin. Stalin gave him a pair of gloves that are made from bear claws, bear, you know, fur of a bear paw. Sure. Um, one of the things in the document side of the collection that I find truly uh, extraordinary is the first draft of the Day of Infamy speech. Um, so, you know, if you think about December 7th, Sunday afternoon, he's in the study of his of the White House with his advisor and friend, Harry Hopkins. He's literally working on his stamp collection, and they get the call. Pearl Harbor's been bombed. You know, it's the worst day in his life. This man loved the U.S. Navy, so the fact that it could suffer this crushing defeat was a huge blow to him. I think that document is just extraordinary both for the way it reflects his ability to construct a speech which delivers the information that the American public needed and wanted at that moment, and his own mastery over language and um, delivery and understanding the power of the spoken word. Now, now that speech, that, that draft of that speech and, and the gloves, um, can visitors see those when they when they come to the library? What's, what can a visitor expect? Well, the library uh, is fantastic, and it has a wide range. It has everything from, you know, the famous fedora hat that he wore on all four of the campaigns. It has extraordinary collection of uh, material from both his childhood and Eleanor Roosevelt's childhood, everything from, you know, his christening gown to the camera he used to photograph when he was a child. Um, it has his car, the famous... 1936 Ford Phaeton that was modified by Edsel Ford to have hand controls for the brake and the accelerator so that he could drive the car even though he was completely paralyzed from the waist down. Um, it has some really remarkable objects from his uh, term in office. Uh, you know, before he was even inaugurated in February of 1933, um, he was almost assassinated in Miami. Uh, he was at a a big rally down there, and a, a anarchist named Giuseppe Zangara was waiting on the sideline. And as FDR's car stopped, and he was talking to the mayor of Chicago, Anton Cernak, Zangara fired five times at point blank range at FDR. The woman standing next to him hit his arm with her pocketbook, and it moved the gun just enough so that the mayor, who was talking to FDR, was shot, and a policeman next to him, and, and a bystander. And we actually have the bullet taken out of the police officer. And it's on display to um, illustrate that. The uh, objects that I think capture what made FDR so special, uh, there's a microphone that was used um, for his fireside chats. And the fireside chats, and there's several stations where you can actually listen to these radio broadcasts, were revolutionary in the way a political leader communicated with the American public. And when you first enter the museum, there's a wall covered with letters that people had written to him and to Eleanor Roosevelt. And those letters reflect America's response to these radio broadcasts that he would do. 
Um, and they really are extraordinary snapshot of America during the 1930s and 40s. Now, since the the, the library's dedication of 41 and the 75 plus years since it's since it first opened, how has the library changed? I guess both as a, as, a, as a physical building and and how it um, displays or, or or presents its collections. Well, when it originally opened, you know, FDR was was a very well-known figure. Everyone in America knew about him, and so people came to see his ship models. And so there were whole galleries that just had ship models and and paintings and and you know prints of naval ships on the walls. And it had what they called the Oddities Gallery, which would have you know giant paper mache heads of him as a sphinx and objects that were given as um, gifts of state from other world leaders and um so it was it was very much a um sort of very old school kind of museum where objects in glass cases with little labels on them uh and then uh in 2013 they did a complete renovation of the entire permanent exhibit a group of historians have been working for about 10 years you know, rethinking how you would do this presidential library and though they installed the new exhibit, which is very much a chronological narrative, because they realized that many people, particularly younger people, have no idea what was happening during these years. And so the idea was to try to introduce them into what challenges FDR faced. So it starts with the Great Depression and goes through his first election and then, you know, backtracks into his family story and Eleanor's family story and Teddy Roosevelt and how the Roosevelts go back to the early mid-17th century in New York and their Dutch heritage. And then it picks up again with the first 100 days um, and goes through his administration chronologically, showing the efforts that were taken to um, overcome the crippling impact of the Great Depression, uh, how he sort of transformed America from an isolationist nation to a global superpower, uh, and the impact of his policies both on American affluence, but more importantly on American influence as he became really the leader of the free world's um, efforts to defeat Nazism and fascism. We also today have uh, integrated a tremendous amount of technology. Uh, we have interactive touch screens. We have listening stations. We just recently um, installed these four large touch walls in what we call our map room, uh, which was created in the White House uh, after Pearl Harbor. Uh, and it was the room where the latest dispatches from military commands all over the world would be funneled into the White House. So any time of day or night, he could go in, he could see the latest maps, he could see the latest dispatches, know what was going on in this far-fung global conflict. And these touchscreens allow you to drill down into D-Day. Uh, so it starts about 10 days before June 6th and goes about 10 days after, and it'll tell you what was Eisenhower doing? What was Churchill doing? What was Hitler doing? What was FDR doing? The movement of the 82nd Airborne, the movement of the ships, what were the French resistance doing? Each day you can drill down an enormous amount of information and photographs and maps and documents and film. And it really, you know, it's an absolute state-of-the-art interactive technology that allows people to either have a sort of a quick summary of what was going on or to be able to drill down into the most minute detail uh, because the map room records, which we have here at the library, uh, they kept every communication, every telex that came in. Um, there's over 2,000 messages back and forth just between Churchill and FDR alone. Now, looking forward, what does the future hold for, for the FDR Presidential Library? Are you offering more of your um, collections online for, for a wider audience? 
Well, the FDR Library has always been an uh, innovator with the technology. It was the first presidential library to have a website back in the early 1990s. Uh, we have uh, almost a million pages that have been digitized and put online now, including what we call the master speech file, which is a, uh, a copy of every major speech that FDR delivered going all the way back to his childhood uh, with all the multiple drafts. So, for example, you could call up December 7th, December 8th, 19th, uh, 41, and look through all of the different drafts of the Day of Infamy speech and see each draft and what the changes were made to it. Um, so th the idea of digitization is critically important. We have to make this material available to people where they are. Um, now, obviously, funding is a big issue. The federal government doesn't fund digitization. We have to raise private money for this. Um, so there's a, a challenge. One of our biggest efforts right now, and digitization revolves around what we call the, the Henry Morgenthau Holocaust Collection Project. Henry Morgenthau was FDR's Treasury Secretary and good friend and was the major moral voice within the administration about finding ways to help um, the Jewish refugees in Europe during the war. His efforts led directly to the creation of the War Refugee Board, but he kept these incredible diaries uh, of every day in office, um, 860 volumes, 400,000 pages, transcripts of every phone call, of every meeting, of every memo, and of course it allows you to look inside uh, and be the fly on the wall as the administration was responding to this ever her increasingly horrific reports coming out of uh, Europe about the treatment of the Jews. So we're trying to go through and make that material available in a way so that people who are looking for information about the American response to the Holocaust can actually immediately access this first-person primary source material about that. Yeah, and if any of our listeners would like to, to visit and check out some of these um, uh, materials themselves, you can find it at fdrlibrary.org. I recommend just going there anyways because there's just a wealth of information on this website. And uh, on March uh, 28th this year, uh, a new exhibit will be opening called FDR's Final Campaign uh, because this year it marks the 75th anniversary of FDR's death on uh, April 12th, 1945, the 75th anniversary of the start of, I mean, the end of World War II, the 75th anniversary of the birth of the United Nations. And so we look at the last, um, you know, period of FDR's life, uh, which is both, you know, heroic and tragic. He dies just weeks before Nazi Germany surrenders. Uh, he doesn't get to see the end of the war. Uh, and yet his legacy is that he created the United Nations. And been 75 years and we haven't had another war and at some level we have to say he was successful in what he considered his his greatest quest job list is the award-winning source for jobs in library science and technology if you're looking for a new job or an employer who wants to advertise a job opening job list has you covered Job seekers can refine and filter searches by position type, employer, or location. Post resumes and automate alerts to never miss a posting. Employers can rest easy knowing that ALA reaches the engaged professionals that they want to hire. It also simplifies recruiting by offering flat rate pricing, discounted multi-ad packages, and enhanced postings for increased visibility. ALA Job List. It's where job seekers and employers get results. Visit joblist.ala.org for more information or to begin your search today.
The Barack Obama Presidential Library is unique among the 14 libraries in the Presidential Library System. It's the first, and only so far, all-digital library. An estimated 95% of the presidential records of the Obama administration were born digital, such as photos, videos, tweets, emails. And the library's online-only existence reflects the change in presidential records over the years. I sat down with Brooke Clement, Deputy Director of the Obama Presidential Library, here at Dewey Decimal Headquarters in Chicago, discuss the library, the changing face of the presidential library model, and more. Now, the, the Obama Presidential Library, um, it's unique. Yes. <laughs> um, now, it's the first all-digital presidential library. There's no physical building for people to visit. Um, what led to, to that decision? So, no president is required to build a presidential library um, for their presidential records. The Presidential Libraries Act of 1955 uh, doesn't require that a foundation or a president build such a facility and actually doesn't even require that the National Archives accept such a facility. Um, and I, I really, I can't speculate as to why uh, President Obama and the Obama Foundation made this decision. Uh, I will note that the Presidential Libraries Act has had multiple amendments to it over, over time and um, things such as, you know, storage and uh, Base limitations for NAR, the National Archive staff, um, and then also a requirement that an, an endowment be um, gifted to the National Archives. Uh, it's that endowment was sixty or initial. That endowment was a percentage of the overall initial construction costs that would offset maintenance costs, and most recently, that endowment was was raised to 60% in, an, in another amendment. So it's very possible that that played a part in in the decision making. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a very, um, those factors aside, it's a very forward thinking mm -hmm. view for a presidential library, which yes. I think is, is, is kind of awesome. Um, what, do you, what do you have the advantages of having an all digital library over the traditional one, the traditional presidential library model. Mm -hmm. I think that the most obvious advantage is that, you know, people will not have to actually travel to a physical site to see the records that we have. Um, that the that anybody would be able to access the records from their own personal computer or their mobile device. So that is that is probably the, the biggest advantage to this. And um, what speaking of the records, what kind of records are at the library. I know there's this note of there's like 30 million pages of unclassified records we're going to be scanned in. That's that's crazy. But mm -hmm. what else can people find there other than those type of, you know, official documents? Well, if anyone's familiar with uh, the presidential libraries, you know, FDR through now us, um, they would note that, you know, a presidential library traditionally holds textual records, uh, audiovisual records, such as photos, video, um, things of that nature. And then we also have um, artifacts, the gifts that the president and Mrs. Obama received during the eight-year administration. Okay. And is there anything in particular that stands out to you? Like, what's what's your favorite thing in the library? <laughs> that's, that's so hard. <laughs> um, I will say that we have a lot of uh, very interesting items and some things that I can just note that we have. I don't know if you're familiar with a New York Times piece that was done 
um, right around the time of the administration ending is a, a New York Times piece about correspondence in the White House. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called 10 Letters a Day. Um, very early on in President Obama's in, administration, he said he wanted to read his mail. So so they kind of curated this 10 letters a day. So he was able to read 10 letters a day. And that still stands. We're still able to locate those items. Oh, wow. um, and then we have uh, you know, handwritten speeches, you know, fully written in President Obama's hand. Um, so th- that's impressive and, and really cool to look at at times. And um, so, and one was on display at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library Museum recently. It was the his handwritten draft of the 50th anniversary of the Selma um, marches, and so that that's really interesting and neat. And then I think that with regard to our, especially our artifact collection, uh, it it's in, it's impressive in the sense of being able to see how it's indicative of the times and. Um, and also the fact that this is an administration that fully embraced technology in ways that had never been done before um, and or had been available to previous administrations. So we have things like his Blackberry, his iPad, a GoPro that he used. Um, and, you know, I like the pop culture weaving in and out of the collection as well. Like we have props that Mrs. Obama and Jimmy Fallon used during segments of his, you know, his show. And um, so, yeah, those are are things that we have and I, I personally find really neat. Oh awesome. Yeah when I was doing research for, for the segment just you know the, the amount of things that came into the to the White House during his administration is staggering. Like you mentioned the 10 letters a day. I think a lot of people don't know that he received 10,000 letters a day. So. <laughs> yes. Yeah reading all of his mail was not really on the table <laughs> like they had to wean it down to 10 letters a day but we still have all of it. <laughs> wow. Um, now, has President Obama or, or Michelle Obama, the First Lady, have, have they been involved in the the collections curation at all at the library? Or how much, I guess, broaden that, how much is a president involved in their presidential library? I mean, I think that that varies. I actually, this is my fourth presidential library that I've, I've been at, so, um, and I've seen it it vary with each and every single one of them. So I think that that varies. I would say that in terms of the collection, um, it's not really a curated collection in the sense that things have been selected and then that's what we have. Um, that is, um, that's really, the Presidential Records Act kind of like dictates this in the sense of, you know, it re- the Presidential Records Act requires that these materials, the official work product, be turned over and transferred in legal custody to the National Archives at the end of the administration. So. That is the collection that we have based on, you know, making sure that everything stands in accordance with the Presidential Records Act. Well, that makes sense. Um, now, since that this is a, a digital library, where are the records themselves being stored? So they are currently stored in a temporary facility in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Uh, that it's and that location, it's not open to the public. Um, but that is where we are currently storing these materials. And as, um, as you've mentioned, we have, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if you've mentioned this yet, like we are in, you know, the, we are working with the Obama Foundation to digitize the unclassified textual records. And um, so that, that is an, a pro- project that is happening in Hoffman Estates. Um, 
or will be happening, I should say. Like, not fully started just yet, but it will be. Um, and uh, so those are, that's the type of stuff that's uh, going to be happening in Hoffman Estates. But yes, it is, it's currently closed to the public. And once we are finished uh, with the digitization project, uh, the National Archives will move these records. They're, they're permanent records. They're, they're not going to go anywhere. They're, no one's disposing of them or anything like that. Um, but they will go into another National Archives facility that's, cur that's already uh, in use. And we'll just store, we will store them there and we'll be able to access the digital content then. And what's the, the timeline? For um for completing that that scanning process because that must be massive. It itself. is, <laughs> it is. Um, it'll be an undertaking. Uh, um, and that the Obama Foundation is the the uh one that will be securing the vendor for this to do this project. Uh, we are supporting it and um and we will we will work with them to get this done as quickly. Like the the hope and the goal is that it would be completed before January 20th of 2022, which is when the public can start uh, requesting access to the materials um, through the Presidential Records Act. Oh. And um, I know we're here in Chicago, and one thing that I think that's on you know the top of everyone's brain here is is the Obama Presidential Center that's, mm -hmm. that's being built down the South Side. Okay. Yeah. Now, what's the difference between the library, the Obama Presidential Library, and the Obama Presidential Center? Are, is there any overlap between the two? No, I wouldn't say there's an overlap. The Barack Obama Presidential Library is the 14th Presidential Library that is administered by the National Archives and Records Administration, which is a federal government agency. Um, the Obama Presidential Center is uh, going to be built, like as you said, in, on the south side of Chicago in Jackson Park, and the Obama Foundation is the, the um, organization that's building that site. The Obama Foundation is a privately owned and non-federal organization so there it's a very distinct you know we have distinct you know missions in terms of everything and um and the national archives and records administration will not have a physical presence within that building that's being built on in jackson park now is the um correct me if i'm wrong but are the are there going to be materials on display at the yes. center that are on loan from the library? Yes, so that is exactly how it will work, is that we will we will loan uh, artifacts and records um, and, and support their exhibit in that way, but they will be through a formal loan process, um, much like what we do uh, with any other uh, museum that might be interested in a loan. Awesome. Now, the... Um... This new model, this all digital model being used by the Obama Library, um, do you see that as being the new standard for, for presidential libraries moving forward? Um, I mean, no, I can't really predict what a presidential administration might decide in the future. The Presidential Libraries Act still offers the traditional model as a model that they might choose. Mm -hmm. um, I will say that the National Archives does support the digital model moving forward. We. Uh, you know, we're becoming a much more digital society and like it just every day there's there's even more digital <laughs> components to it. So, um, and with our records in particular, 95% of our overall, like roughly 95% of our overall holdings came to us born digital. Mm -hmm. So it kind of just is making sense for, like as we move into a much more digital, you know, culture, that that, that is the way of the future in, in a lot of respects. Mm -hmm. 
Now you'd mentioned that um, that uh, people can um, uh, access the uh, the library, you know, computers, smartphones, tablets, any way mm -hmm. possible. What's um what's the URL? How how can people find that, <laughs> find it? Um, there's multiple ways that we're going to try and make this available and accessible. Uh, right now, because the Presidential Records Act uh, states that you know after the first. After a president leaves office, the records are closed for a period of five years. So we are we're supporting you know special access requests and things of that nature. But the records themselves are not open to the public mm -hmm. um, until January twentieth of twenty twenty two. And at that point, we still have to do the line by line review. Um, they, you know we get we'll get a Freedom of Information Act request in, and we'll still do the line by line review of every every document just to make sure that we are not opening anything we should not be opening. Um, and once that has gone through the, the process fully, uh, the goal is to make it available on our website, which is www.obamalibrary.gov. Um, we also just launched an Instagram account. Uh, our handle is at Obama Library. <laughs> and so the goal is, in the meantime, to be able to share things that are already publicly available, such as photos and artifacts and, and those things. And, um, and then also, uh, the overall goal will also be to share this material on the National Archives catalog. That wraps another episode of the Dewey Decibel Podcast. Many thanks to Paul and Brooke for speaking with us today. Join us next month as we discuss women's history, feminism, and the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, and more with authors Mickey Kendall and Roxane Gay. In the meantime, if you'd like to share any thoughts, concerns, show ideas, praise, complaints, anything at all, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Reach out. Let us know how we're doing. Or if you want to find me, you can reach me at deweydecibel at ala.org. Please, get in touch. As always, I'm Phil Moorhart, Senior Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and this is the Dewey Decibel Podcast. Mm -hmm.